Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At The Intercooler, we're proud to have JBR Capital on board as a podcast sponsor. They're a great fit for us because like The Intercooler, they're geared up around the car enthusiast. JBR Capital is the UK's only independent finance lender dedicated solely to high-end vehicle finance. That's all the company does. It means JBR Capital knows the car marketplace inside out and therefore is properly geared up to tailor finance quotes around the individual. There's no one-size-fits-all approach with JBR. In 2022, the company expects to surpass a billion pounds of lending in only its eighth year. The company can finance new cars, classic cars, sports cars, supercars, hypercars, any car, in fact, with a value greater than £25,000. The company's motto is fund your passion. And let's face it, without car finance, how many of us would really be able to afford to fund our passion for cars? So get in touch with JBR Capital before buying your next car. You'll find contact information in the description. And as ever, tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 104 of the podcast. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel, as always. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Dan. We're we're talking this week about all the lost British car makers, with a particular focus on the ones that have been revived successfully or otherwise. Or Um, otherwise. (laughs) There's so many of them. But before we get stuck in... Um, there's one thing I want to mention, which is our mate, our TI contributor, David Tuig, um, who's the brilliant engineer who, who now writes for us. He's got a book out. Um, it's called Inside the Machine, An Engineer's Tale of the Modern Automotive Industry. Um, and I mention it now because, well, the book came out last week. And as far as I can tell, it seems to be doing really well on Amazon. Um, and we're going to be running an extract from the book on the app very soon. So if you're a TI subscriber, keep an eye out for that. 
Um, and uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning because David writes so well for us, doesn't he, about the industry, about the job of being a car engineer. Um, he writes in an entertaining but informative way. And I've had a, a leaf through the book. I've not read the whole thing. I've read good chunks, mostly about the Alpine. Um, and it, it's the same stuff, same insightful, interesting yeah. stuff that you didn't know before. So, yeah. Um, yeah, keep an eye out for the extract. I haven't had a leaf through it because uh, it's so popular at the moment. Amazon can't even tell me what time, when mine's going to arrive. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and I think the thing about it is, you know, David, he's such a an instinctive um, and excellent writer that, you know, frankly, he could be writing about budgery girls. And, I, you know, it, it's just, it's just, you know, writing that is great to read, almost whatever he's writing about. And he also happens to be writing about stuff that, you know, we find really interesting. So hopefully you guys will too. Yeah, inside the machine, it's called. Um, all right, let's crack on then. I, before we sort of start talking about specific car makers, I just want to wonder why there have been so many British car companies that have come and gone over the years. Um, and I think there are an infinite number of reasons. One is that it's a sheer numbers game, isn't it? That Britain has often, has long been a hotbed of engineering and manufacturing, maybe not so, man- not so much manufacturing recently, but it was at one point and so there were just so many small independent car companies that sprouted up out of the ground weren't there and they couldn't all survive no they couldn't all survive but you'd have thought more than more (laughs) more than have would have done i mean so i just uh i was just sort of knocking about on wikipedia and they got a page called it's called something like defunct british car marks um so these are car companies which you know have absolutely i don't know how many british car marks exist today as such i mean not many but this list of defunct cars it is 422 <laughs> different car companies wow Even gone. so <laughs> actually so yeah so if you yeah defunct gone so if you're sitting here thinking i really like to start start up a car company just just think about your odds first i mean statistically that's why i, th- I, f- I find guys like um ariel simon saunders who mm. started that up out of nothing and actually i made a go of it and made it succeed and now has a thriving business i just i'm just lost in admiration for those guys because the chances of actually establishing something in particularly today with all the you know the the, the, the hoops you have to jump through all the legislative stuff um and actually get a business and also people are all we're, we're all you know well not all of us but a lot of people are just bad snobs and you know you could build build the best car in the world and you know people still wouldn't buy it because it was called a frankel or a prosser when they'd much rather you know drive a porsche because that's easy to explain to your mates and so it's it's such a hard thing to do um and yeah as we know know, the vast 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 majority come and they go sad isn't it yeah, I mean, there are many more reasons as well, particularly on the sort of <clears throat> the mass market side, politics, trade unions, short-sighted management, cost-cutting, competition from Europe and Far East especially. There are just so many reasons. But it, I, th- I think at the heart of it, and you've touched on it there, it's that the car-making game is fearsomely difficult. It's so, so hard, hard to do. Um, and I, I'm just sort of reminded of Aston Martin, Lotus, Jaguar, um, they are among the best established car marks in the world. They have long traditions building beautiful and groundbreaking cars. Their brands are incredibly strong, desirable, yeah. and th- yeah. the, the terrible times they those struggle. companies. So, endlessly, yeah. how many times has Aston gone bust? 
I don't know, it's well into double figures. <laughs> um, and I, I, was, I was having a, I can't remember who it was, but I was having a conversation with someone. I was in America uh, and I was talking to somebody about, about, about exactly this. And he was, they were saying, why would you start a car company? Something which is, requires so much upfront investment, which is so likely to fail, when actually, what are you going to get at the end of it? I mean, the margins. I mean, if you're a Louis Vuitton, you're selling handbags, your margins on those are, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of percent. In cars, it's like single digits. So you're doing all this, and what for? And those margins are so easily eroded and so subject to the fickle finger of fate and fashion and, and, and everything else. It's such an enormous punt for such little potential return at such potentially catastrophic... Con- I just, as I said, I just, I just admire anyone who has a go. I wouldn't think about it. I'm reminded of um, a story our mate, our old mate, David Tuig told. He did write about it, actually. It was a, a conference um, for the, the Renault-Nissan alliance. <clears throat> um, and there was a lot of speculation at the time, and I think within the automotive industry, concern that Apple was looking at building a car and getting into the car market. And someone put this question to Carlos Ghosn, who said on stage, why would Apple get into a terrible business like ours they make margins of 50% mostly on software. We make margins of a few percent on fearsomely complicated machines that are very difficult to build, to distribute, and then have to be serviced and warranted and all sorts. And he just said, they wouldn't bother. They wouldn't get into this sector because it's so terrible. Um, which is, yeah, interesting coming from a guy like him, isn't it? So... <clears throat> It's hard to know where to start really with this, but at the top of my list, I've got Jensen. So that seems like as good a place to start as any. Also, a good time to do it because Jensen was founded actually as W.J. Smith & Sons Limited in West Bromwich 100 years ago this year. Um, wow, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, there you go. So it's, it's a very, very old mark, or at least <clears throat> um, W.J. Smith & Sons is a very old, old mark. And it's much later on that it became Jensen. Um, so, I mean, they, yeah, brothers Alan and Richard Jensen gave the company that name. Um, and over the years, it's built some significant and interesting cars. The Interceptor, the FF, first yeah. all-wheel drive car with, and first car with ABS as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, it was. This is extraordinary. Extraordinary that a tiny little Mark could do that. And also, they were um, one of those car brands. Um, Allard is another, actually, which... Um, and I guess you could say AC did it as well, um, which managed to marry quite successfully British car design with American mechanical, you know, Detroit, Bent 8, V8, Iron. And and they were good. I mean, Jensen's came with big, I think they were like 6.3 litre Chrysler V8 motors. Um, big, lazy lump of a car in a machine which looks really quite cool. Um I can remember there was, when I was at school, there was some girl who I was uh, quite taken with, and her dad drove an Interceptor. I wonder why um, you were taken with uh, <laughs> Well, possibly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, um, don't know. But I mean, but I, I, can, I can just remember this white thing sort of growling around the corner as he, as he came to sort of pick her up and just thinking, that is just, that is just so. I don't, I've never driven one. I'm not sure they're that great to drive. Someone's didn't someone, someone's making them again now, aren't they? With like um, LS3s or yeah, Corvette engines in them. Yeah, uh, yep. I think. Um, 
But you know, so my connection to Jensen is is that they were revived. The brand came back at the end of the nineteen nineties yeah. um, and produced this thing called the SV8. It was quite a curious car. But at the time, and I can remember it very vividly because I was, you know, right at the cutting edge. Um, we took it very seriously. They seemed to have some money about them. Um, the car looked credible, um, and they actually, unlike so many of these car companies, which kind of like put a car on a show stand and never seen again, uh, it got into production. They actually made some. They sold some. Um, I think they made. Well, I think they made 40 cars, but I'm not sure they actually sold 40 cars. I think they sold like half of those, and then the rest were, you know, in various states of disassembly. Um, and then I think... It, it, the thing is, and the reason it is so bloody difficult, is car manufacturers, people who want to start up a new car manufacturer, they have a great idea um, because they they know exactly what they want to build. They build an amazing prototype, um, because it's new, because the press is always hungry for column engines, it gets lots of noise. Um, it goes on a show stand. Maybe they get it to run. Maybe they do some early drives or whatever. And we go, woo! And what they don't appreciate, what they appear not to appreciate, is they, haven't, they basically haven't begun the job. Because the job is not to design an amazing car. The, design, the, the, the job is to put a car into production at a price which a the customer will pay and b which will return you sufficient prof- profit to be able to continue to keep it in production and at a quality um that is going to ensure that these customers don't just buy one when they're done with that they go and buy another and compared to that actually designing a car and getting a one assuming i think tvr probably saying this um getting one car built walk in the park dead easy doddle um and it's always the turning that great idea into a hard-nosed, profitable production reality, um, which is so, so difficult. Crikey. When you frame it like that, you just think, why would anyone bother? It's just too <laughs> why difficult. Why <laughs> Just go and buy something else which somebody else has done. Somebody yeah. else has had all the pain and heartache. Ugh. So did you ever drive the SV8, or did it not sort of no. reach that point? No, I mm. didn't. I don't. Uh, I, I think... I'm guessing someone like Cropley would have done uh, because I mean cars were out there, so they would have done drives. Um, I did. I did car. I can't, it's too long ago. I can't remember why I didn't drive it, but um, I didn't. Um, I, I, I would like to have done. I suspect it was kind of okay. These cars tend to be, um, but you know, it's not good enough, is it? Being kind of okay, it's actually it's not good enough. Being really quite good, because these things, I think that costs like forty grand. Which twenty old twenty plus twenty five years ago, whatever, you know that would have been nine eleven money, wouldn't it? So you, let's imagine you built one which was as good as a nine eleven, which you're not going to do. <laughs> yeah, but you do it somehow miraculously. But you built a car that's as good as a nine eleven. That's not good enough, isn't it? Because okay, it's as good as a nine eleven, but why would people not just buy a nine eleven? Yeah. You'll get a few people. You'll get the iconoclasts um, and the people who want to do stuff different um, who buy it because it's not a 911 because that's what everybody else has. But they're really very, very small. And so you've got to be so much better than a 911 that people will actually think this thing is giving me something that a 911 doesn't. It's not going to happen, is it? It's not. Um, so, Jensen, yeah, I mean, it was seven years ago, um, 2015, Autocar reported that the Jensen name was officially being revived and two models were expected by 2016. 
Um, no. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So oh, yeah, we're, we're apparently it's going to see. such a familiar story, isn't it? Uh, it's it's endless. It's just on repeat, isn't it? Like a broken record. Um, but it, it, does it not speak something of the sort of the human spirit that that, that yeah. despite you know all that precedent, you don't have to look very hard to find it. You know, Wikipedia will do. Four hundred and twenty-two car car manufacturers, um, and to know that the odds are so overwhelmingly stacked against you, it's like that story that again, this is going to turn into the David Tuig podcast. David wrote a um, a story for us about climbing the uh, about the people who pioneered climbing the um, the north face of the Eiger in the nineteen thirties, and the people who eventually succeeded it doing it did it despite they set out despite knowing that 75 percent of people who tried it before had died yeah yeah and they thought well again well, someone's, gonna, someone's gonna get up there why would you bother and it's like starting a car company you know the, you, you you set out knowing that the overwhelming likelihood is that you'll lose all your money and your dream isn't going to come true it'll turn into a nightmare and yet i find it i find it weird I find it curious, I, but I'm more than else, I just find it inspiring that despite all this, these lunatics go and do it anyway. Thank goodness for them, because, you know, it's, it, it gives us great stories. And just occasionally, it gives us an aerial as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just sometimes Very we get occasionally. A, a real star. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's yeah. have another one. Invicta. And I like Invicta because it's got a brilliant name. Um, oh. It's a shame it's not around these days. But So it was originally founded in 1925. So again, almost 100 years ago in Cobham, Surrey. Um, and it bounced about a bit. It was in Chelsea. It was in Virginia Water in Surrey again a bit later on. Um, and at times, 20, in the 20s and 30s, Building some gorgeous cars, the four and a half litre S type of 1931. Oh, honestly, go and look. If you haven't, if you don't know what we're talking about, go and look at a low chassis four and a half litre um, mm. Invicta. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, that to me is, if I was a kid in the 1930s, that would be my dream car. That would be my Lamborghini Countach. That would be the thing that was on my bedroom wall. It was so low. It was so raffish um, and cool. Um, Mega, um, and 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 they were really really good cars. I I I know someone um, who races one to this day, um, and he always drives it to the circuit, and then he races it and he drives oh. it home again. Um, and it's uh, it's just it's just a proper thing. And then yeah, um, somebody tried to um, do another many many years later. And they did, yeah. So Invictus just come and gone over the years, and it's been wound up by the courts more than once, I think subsumed ultimately into Fraser Nash. Um, but in the early 2000s, it was resurrected um, with the Invicta S1. I didn't realise it was in Chippenham, um, so not far from us. Um, do you remember much about the S1? It was shown at the 2002 I, I, well, British no, Motor I Show. It. I went and drove it. Um, yeah, that I did drive, yeah. Um, and, and I think I know what went wrong with that. It was actually, it really was one of the better efforts. Um, it looked really cool. Um, it was actually very well built. Um, and I went and drove it and I thought it was pretty credible and I thought it had a good name. Um, it looked quite good, a bit of the usual parts bin stuff going on. Um, I think the specific problem with Invicta, which would, and I can remember thinking this at the time, one of the things you have to understand if you're going to do this and you look at companies like who do this so well, like Caterham, like Ariel, the key in my view is don't make anything, you know, 
you're not a manufacturer. Caterham don't make anything. Ariel don't make anything. They get other people who know what they're doing to make stuff, and then they assemble them. They're assembly facilities. They put cars together. Um, and Invicta, it was a carbon fiber car. Um, and I went into this little facility they had on some industrial state, and they had like an autoclave in the back of it. They were doing everything themselves. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, they were, you know, they weren't just building the car, they were curing their own carbon. Like, I was thinking, I mean, this is just nuts. Oh, yeah, and, and, and I think the reason for it was that, oh, if we do it ourselves, we can control the process. Uh, and then, you know, we don't have to pay their margins and everything else. But the upfront costs of doing that when cash flow is king with a new business. And then, very unfortunately, they did a demo. I think it might have been like in, in one of the sort of, you know, run-ups to, you know, those demos they did before the British Grand Prix. It was, very, it was a Silverstone, it was very public. And someone, I don't even think it was somebody from Invicta, it was somebody they just allowed to drive the car, binned it in a big way. It was a very expensive and sadly very public binning. And I think it had nothing to do with it. I don't think anything broke on the car or anything else. I think the bloke just binned it. Um, and we never heard of it again. It's so sad. Because I actually, I, I, I really like that guy. The bloke, I can't remember his name. Was he Bristow? Michael Bristow. Anyway, but the, Michael Bristow. There you go. Um, he was a really nice guy. Uh, I can remember meeting him and instinctively liking him, warming towards him and really, really, really wanting him to succeed. I didn't think he would. Um, but yeah, it would have been, it would have been great because it would have been a great name. Um, and he was in it for the right reasons, but sadly not to be. It had the rear lights from a VW Passat. I just remember spotting those the moment I first saw the car turned through 90 degrees. They actually look pretty good, but I mean, at least they got that bit right using parts that were already out there, already designed, manufactured, homologated. It's just too expensive, isn't it? To tool up for your own lights. Um, yeah. And Sadly, Invicta did not survive. It was wound up in 2012 by the court again. Um, so bah, there we go. Gone for good, maybe. Um, let's have another. You've already mentioned AC, AC cars. Um, yeah. Originally, Auto Carriers Limited. I had no idea. Um, and this is one of the oldest independent car makers in Britain, founded in 1901. Yeah. That's right in at the ground floor, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. The Weller Brothers of West Norwood, London. Um, but like many of these others, it's come and gone so many times over the decades. Um, however, what a time they had in the 60s. Well, yeah, in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, the Ace, the Greyhound, and, and then obviously, although it wasn't really their car, everybody thinks about AC, they think Cobra, don't they? Um, I mean, that was really Shelby's car. Um, but, you know, as we said, yes, this, this amazing marriage between this beautiful... Um, British sports car and this brutal American V8s, um, and it did it did amazing things. Um, that came back too. Uh, what are they called? Was it was it was it the Ace? Uh, what recently? In the t- well, reasonably well. I might say recently in the nineties. I drove something. It was powered by a Ford Yamaha Show V8, um, and it was. Brian Anglis owned the, the name at the time, and I don't know. Who, I don't know who owns the car. I mean, obviously, but people are still. I mean, I'm sure Carol Shelby or so. Or, well, he's he's long gone, but uh, his organisation, they obviously own the rights to Shelby and the Shelby Cobra and that sort of thing. And and, and someone will own the rights to AC. So, um, 
I, I certainly wouldn't. I, I'm not quite sure what AC's current status is. You, 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 you may know, but I certainly wouldn't rule out somebody else popping up with it. So, but they, they, they also produced one of these cars, and that looked good, and that drove well. Um, but again, it just came down to this this old old problem as you know, just you know, looking good um, and being well configured and fundamentally sound in terms of its engineering. It's just it's just not nearly enough. Um, this is well timed actually because recently Mel Nichols wrote a piece for us about the worst car he's ever driven. Oh yeah, um, it went up on a TI app recently, and it was an AC. Um, there was a car that AC three thousand ME that arrived in the very late seventies into the eighties, um, and Mel says, "I nearly bought one." <laughs> what stopped I you? Did, I, I, um, Providence, I think. Um, no, I'll tell you exactly what stopped me. Uh, I mean, so, so when I was before I was motoring journalist, and I was briefly in the city, and I briefly had some money, and I was young and particularly stupid i suddenly i decided that i needed a i needed a mid-engine british supercar um i can't even believe i i i, I, I anyway i ended up with a with a lotus esprit which is i think i said on this podcast before never completed a single journey without going wrong <laughs> um but it was it was a toss-up between that and the ac 3000 me and the reason actually the really the reason i didn't buy the ac was the bloke who had it wouldn't let me drive it can't imagine why I turned up on my mini metro, but no, but, but I, I suspect he also probably realised that if I drove it, I'd realise what a complete crock of shit it was, and and, and not buy it. So, um, but I did, I did go and look at one, and I was quite serious about it. Um, and if he'd let me drive it, I probably wouldn't have bought it because I would have realised how awful it was. So I probably would never have actually had one. But um, yeah, it, 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 I, I came quite close. I was going to say. You dodged a bullet, but I'm not sure you did because you ended up in that esprit that apparently was all sorts of bother. Um, but yeah, but Mel's pretty damning of that car in the article. Says it has fundamentally, he says it has fundamental handling flaws. Um, enormous lift off oversteer, ultimately not enough rubber on the rear axle on the road, uh, and all sorts of other issues as well. But yeah, I mean, AC has come back um, in one way or another in the last couple of years. Um, building electric versions of older cars, the open-top sports cars. Um, there is the AC Ace RS Electric, um, and apparently, apparently they're doing a Cobra um, again as an all-electric thing. It's if you Google, if you search around, there have been articles and, and so on written about it. They've got a website up, but you'd think, wouldn't you, if they were having a great time of it? they'd be much more visible. We'd be, well, we'd have had a go for one thing. Um, so it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on with AC at the moment. If anyone's listening from AC and you have got something fun for us to drive, let us know. Um, do you want to choose uh, one to talk about? Maybe Lagonda? Yeah, let me, yes, I'd like to talk about Lagonda a little bit um, because as we know, it, it, it did almost come back, um, and it almost. I mean, obviously, everybody knows that you know, the Lagonda brand is owned by Aston Martin, um, and under the previous administration, under Andy Palmer's leadership, uh, as part of his unbelievably ambitious plan for the future of the company, uh, Lagonda was going to be relaunched as a pure EV luxury brand, um, and this was a time before Rolls Royce were even talking about doing an EV. Um, and before Bentley was talking about an EV. And there was this big, big gap in the market. Um, and the idea was that 
yeah, a obviously for a luxury car, electricity is wonderful because what do luxury cars need? They need silence and they need talk, and an EV provides that. So, so it's inherently well suited to. And you know, also it doesn't matter if it's heavy, so you can put an enormous battery in it, so you can actually go places in it. And even if ultimately the range isn't that enormous, it doesn't really matter because whoever is going to spend one of these will have an S class or something like that in which they can go and do. So, but these these are still not quite recreational but these are luxury products they're not machine they're not working tools and it all seemed to me i just genuinely thought it was a really really good idea um and the idea was i'm not even sure i should be talking about this now but um i, don't, I can't see it does any harm the idea was that the car the, the, the company lagonda would be launched almost as a separate company although still under the aston umbrella but it would be headquartered in california um and you know lagonda has you know great american connections it was actually founded by an american called wilbur gunn and it's named after lagonda creek um which is in i don't know ohio somewhere in america um and so it that was all very sort of synergistic and everything else um but then as we know aston martin got itself into all sorts of financial strife um the plan was far too ambitious and when the new administration led by Tobias Mers came in um Lagonda was one of the very first things to get kicked into the long grass and the sadness is now um that I I, I think they missed the boat because you know the press is full of the Rolls-Royce Spectre isn't it and you know Rolls-Royce are um they they now have their car it'd be interesting wouldn't it I wonder whether they actually pressed the green light for that car earlier than otherwise they would have done because they thought um, Lagonda were coming for them. Um, and certainly at the time when you know Lagonda did that electric SUV concept a few years ago and showed it um, and made all sorts of, um, frankly, not code two coded references to uh, Rolls-Royce in their press materials uh, and basically took the mech out of Rolls-Royce being you know stuffy and traditional and Lagonda was the forward-thinking blah. Um, and I wonder whether Rolls-Royce didn't just think, oh, well, I, okay, well, we'll, um, we'll respond to this and we'll get going with this a bit shorter. I don't know. But now that Rolls-Royce is going to be doing an all-electric uh, luxury um, car, I, I, I think Lagonda's moment may well have passed. And it's such a shame because, you know, the Lagondas of the 1930s, things like the M45R, um, the V12 Lagondas, um, the W.O. Bentley designed engine. These were magnificent cars. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, one of them won Le Mans in 1935, which is not something that I think most people recall. Um, and yeah, I, you know, just occasionally you'll see a pre-war Lagonda bimbling down the road. And a Bent, uh, you know, pre-war Bentley is, I think everyone knew what they look like and they're, you know, and, and they are, um they have lots of presence um and purpose and everything else but you see a lagonda and you just think that's beautiful just beautiful the kind of quintessential 1930s family british open sports car and um i'd love to see them come back i suspect it's probably on Lawrence stroll and tobias's priority list probably number 47 um you know so far down as to you know not have any realistic prospect anytime soon but i hope not it was a it was a great idea and it seemed to make sense um making an ev brand in particular i guess it was too much for aston martin to take on at that time troubled ipo just a lot going on they need to steady the ship didn't they and perhaps this would have destabilized it um okay right we can't have this conversation (laughs) about troubled British marks without mentioning the one from Blackpool 
Um, TVR. <laughs> oh dear. I, I yeah. don't even know where where we stand with TVR at the moment. Um, I mean, it seemed troubled anyway, and then COVID hit, and it. I mean, that just that, that was a, a wrecking ball through the whole industry, wasn't it? So imagine trying to get an independent sports car maker off the ground um, against that backdrop. Um, do we know where? So is at the Goodwood uh, revival, wasn't it in two thousand and seventeen? Seventeen. So, Five, five years, years ago. ago this year. Uh, that is, they you know, showed the Griffiths. Yeah, so, so, so far as I'm aware, and I think so far as anybody else is aware, in those five years, they've built a car. One car. Um, there has been some noise. Really. I know that they got planning permission to build their factory. Uh, and, and if I'm honest with you, I don't know what the current status is. It may be that they'll roll out the cars this summer. Um, but you know, everybody judges themselves on what they feel capable of. Everybody else judges them on what they've already achieved and what they've already achieved is one car in the last five years. And, you know, they say, or they certainly have said that their depositors are very loyal and I hope that they are, but they must be getting bored. They must be getting tired of thinking, where are our cars? Um, there's still a bit of me, which would like it to happen because I think TVR is, you know, I think, I think the world's just a better place for TVRs in it. Um, you know, uh, I've always, although I've never particularly rated the TVRs that I've driven, well, most of them anyway, um, I've always enjoyed them. They've always had a sense of occasion. And, you know, this one, you know, let's not forget, designed by Gordon Murray, um, I think it had real potential. Um, but it's already a five year old car. Yeah, and it will need. And it hasn't hit the road yet. It will need updating even since that. Yeah, and and, and the other problem is is that the, the, the. Further and further away from that you get, and the closer and closer you get to, you know, when you aren't even allowed to sell a petrol-powered car in this country anymore, then, you know, your future product plan just gets completely, you know, you know if they got it on sale in 2018, which is what I imagine um, would have happened, then, you know, that's that, that would have been their plan. You know, that would have been fine. You know, they would have had years and years and years. But now, even if they get it on sale, I don't know. I don't know. I, I I can't see it myself, and I hope I'm wrong. Um, I, I you know more than that. I, I you know, I'd love it to happen. I'd love it to be really good, and I'd love it to be successful. But there must now be so much, so many people just sitting there thinking exactly what you are thinking, which is really, mm. is it mm. ever going to happen? What's mm. what's changed now? But you know, let's hope we're wrong. So it had the right name, Griffith, a good name for a TVR. Um, you can make your own mind up about the way the car looks. I don't think I'm entirely convinced. But it had promise. No, it had a, um, that Ford V8 used by the Mustang, tuned by Cosworth. So it probably would have been a pretty tasty motor. Manual gearbox. Um, I mean, I think it had light. has potential. Say again? Light, yeah, light light car. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, got, and, and, and Gordon, you know, designed by Gordon and yeah. his team. So, you know, you'd have to bet that it would get down the road, okay? Um, so the factory is in Ebury Vale, isn't it? South Wales, very near to where we spend yeah. a fair amount of our time. Um, yeah. And actually, if you look at satellite images, Google Earth, and there are photos online, you can see how the building of the factory has progressed. Um, and there are images of the facade. It looks quite flashy. Um, it just remains to be seen whether or not they'll produce TVRs in it. Uh, they were they were looking to raise £25 million recently, weren't they? Um, so... 
uh, we're just going to have to sit back and wait and see, aren't we? Hopefully, they'll get it all together and they'll build some great sports cars. But until that day arrives, I think it's very easy to be cynical. Um, do you want to pick out another one? The list is so long. We're no, never going to get through all of them. But do you want to pick out one more? No. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Austin Healy. Let's wow. have it. Austin yeah. Healy's. They were fantastic. Particularly <laughs> the 1950s ones. Uh, they got a bit sort of fat and heavy in the 60s. Um, but, you know, 104 um, or 100M, these were, these were superb, high-quality, fast British sports cars. Beautiful, very well-engineered. I mean, not sort of state-of-the-art technologically, but that was actually a good thing because it just meant that they were robust. They were rugged. Um, I drove one recently, which was a sort of like a slightly... Slightly tuned, um, but still fairly standard road car. It was a, I think it was a 104. And I just, I just really, really liked it. It was just, and I, and I was on the road with some much faster, uh, more exotic machinery of that kind of era. Uh, and I didn't feel shortchanged. They didn't disappear off into the distance. I don't think that they were having a lot more fun than me, despite the fact that their cars were worth many times um, what I was driving, and I just I, and 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 I really do hanker after one. You know, I, I got out of it thinking I could because it's it's not so valuable. You're going to worry about using it all the time. Um, the bits are cheap and plentiful. They're really quite simple. So you know, you, it's it's not going to be like you know so many cars where you know if you ding a panel, you've completely stuffed it because you know you'll never find another one or. You know, a bit of the engine breaks. Oh, well, that's it. You're going to, you know, that's going to bleed you out. It's, it's not like, I mean, they're just simple, robust, honest, straightforward, but really, really good British sports cars. Um, and, yeah, I'd love to see that back. I, I suspect that BMW have the name because they bought all those names when they got Rover. Um, and I suspect that's where it lies now. And I can't see BMW doing an Austin Healey. Um, and, and obviously the problem is, is the further away you get from when these cars did have a cachet and were highly regarded, the more distant they become and the less people care about them. I mean, people like me do because we're mad, but, you know, um, it, 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 it's not enough. It's like you know, when Mercedes uh, exhumed my back um, because this was a great old name. But what they forgot was it was a great old name from the 1930s and everybody had forgotten about it. Which is why when they produced the Maybach um, originally, uh, or the revived one, um, one reason is that it just completely struggled because nobody knew what a Maybach was. Nobody cared what a Maybach was. Um, and maybe Austin Healey wouldn't do that well if they brought that back because of, because of that. I don't know, but um, I'd love it. Can I do another? <laughs> of course you can. I don't think I can stop you. Okay, Alvis. Yeah. Um, I, won't, I won't dwell long on Alvis, but I think, you know, but... In the 1920s and 1930s, an Alvis, I was trying to think of a kind of like a comparison. It was like, I suppose, an F-type to a DB9. So if a Bentley was like a DB9, so if a Bentley was like the, you know, the, the creme de la creme of the sort of British um, Grand Tourers, um, then an Alvis was a very honest, um, very high quality um not quite as fast, not quite as expensive, but still terrific um, example of that art. I used to own one. I used to own a 1929 Silver Eagle. Um, and they were just beautifully engineered. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, they survived the war, came back, but um, I, th- I think they must have wound up in the 1960s or something, but they never recaptured their fort. But in the 1920s and 1930s, Alvis was a really, really proper brand, in the same way that, you know, that, that, that Lagonda was. And um, yeah, I'd like to see them come back. Um, Reliant. See, you <laughs> say Reliant, everybody thinks Robin, everybody yeah. thinks Del Boy's van. You forget the scimitar. Yeah. Princess Anne used to drive a Reliant scimitar. My, my best mate at my, um, at my little school, Dan, used to drive a scimitar. And because my folks lived abroad, um, on, on weekends, we'd go, I'd go back to his place and Dad would always come pick us up in the scimitar. And I just love that thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, Reliant's never going to come back. And, and, and the, the second scimitar, which I was a motoring journalist when that turned up, the SS1, the Michelotto-designed um, thing, which was just so ugly. Um, it, was, <laughs> it, it, it was actually reasonable to drive, but yeah. Um, Triumph, you know, obviously, you know, it's a highly um, regarded motorcycle manufacturer these days. Um, if you think of Triumph, the cars, you think of dreadful things like, you know, Spitfires and, you know, and that sort of thing. But actually, the early TRs, TR2, TR3, TR3A, TR4, TR5, they were really, really good cars. Um, and I miss them. Riley. Again, you know, people God, think Riley. So that? I mean, you know. Um, but in the 1930s, oh my goodness. A 1930s Riley Imp or a, a Riley MPH. I mean, they were, they were Aston Martins. They were unbelievable things. Um, and today, incredibly valued. And really, really highly regarded by people who know about this stuff. Um, the chances of Riley coming back is there a number that's less than zero? Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame. Um, what else have we got down here? Uh, what Rover, strikes well, me is that we're very often talking about quite beautiful um, two-seat sports cars, maybe open top. Uh, it's yeah. really evocative stuff a lot of the time, isn't it? I'm going to do one more. Sorry, you've got me on a roll now. Uh, only, because, only because I was in the car when the company went bust. <laughs> you weren't. Marcos. You weren't culpable were you no it wasn't no 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 um marcos we so marcos went bust and that was such a shame because they 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 actually they produced a great car oh, what was it called the tso or something <coughs> and we were doing a twin test with this and a morgan plus eight up north and the marcos was so much better than the morgan really? um and i got yeah it really really was um really powerful great looking but actually had un- unlike the morgan had a proper chassis on it great driver's car um and i got a call from the office saying whatever you do don't answer your telephone um from now on and i go why well, i said well marcos has just gone bust and the receiver wants the car because it was a you know it was a sizable asset of what remained of the company at that time and we had a twin test to shoot <laughs> you know, we have pages in the Jotted magazine it. waiting for it yeah. um and so yes i'm afraid i, I dodged the receiver uh, we got on and finished the job and then i had this i was in this bizarre situation of having to write a twin test between two cars one of which you could you, you you wouldn't be able to buy and so i had to sort of say well had you been able to buy this marcos <laughs> that's the car that you should have bought but as it happens um it's gone panther, panther oh my goodness panther, they panther. keep coming yeah yeah um <laughs> so um so the things like uh, the Callista and the Lima, um, which were kind of like Morgans. They were sort of retro-looking sports cars. They, they were pretty terrible, to be honest. 
Um, the one I want to talk about is the solo, which came about, must be about 30, about 1990, something like that. Um, because the Panther solo um, had enormous potential. Mid-engine, four-wheel drive, two-seat sports car. Um, and it was one of the finest handling cars, certainly up until that time, probably since that I'd ever driven. It was it was absolutely incredible. It was light. It had narrow little tyres on it. You could balance it so beautifully for a mid-engine car. Um, it was so easy to drive. And, you know, had they been able to build it properly, had they been able to sort out the terrible noise coming from that, it had a Sierra Cosworth engine in it. Um, you know, maybe something would have come out of it, but it looked really odd. Um, but it was, I remember it just because it was amazing to drive um, and it was and that did make it different. There was actually a reason to buy that over anything else because it was so outstanding to drive. But or sadly, there were many more reasons why you shouldn't buy it. And nobody did. I think I don't know what they made, you know, a couple of dozen of those. I don't know. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the end of Panther. Just um, imagine how God, rich so and many. varied the British sports car scene would be now if only half of these companies had survived for oh, being able to produce don't, sports don't. cars it's, it's extraordinary yeah. um i know you want to mention briefly delorean well not really uh, <laughs> i just thought we ought to <laughs> okay well, well we know there was a teaser image recently wasn't there of a shadowy car with the gullwing doors in the raised position yeah um and yeah. We, we know it's coming back as an ev of some sort don't we okay um, can, I, can i tell you what's clever about it go on i'll tell you what's clever about it is that all these cars that come back, they come back because they got some wonderful heritage. And then what happens is when they come back, they fail to live up to that wonderful heritage. This car's not going to have that problem. No. No one's going to go, oh, it's good, but it's not as good as an original DeLorean. Because it could still be really terrible and be better than an original DeLorean. So that burden of expectation doesn't sit on its shoulders. Uh, and I also think that, it, you know, I, I, and... and this says nothing about DeLorean at all and everything about Robert Zemeckis, who's the bloke who directed the three Back to the Future films. Um, you know, DeLorean had a brand created for it by, by Hollywood, didn't it? And so there is bizarrely warmth out there towards DeLorean, despite the fact the cars, the very few cars that, did produ- that were produced in really pretty reprehensible circumstances. Um, they, were, they were just terrible. Our, our, our chum Chris Harris drove one on Top Gear, didn't he? Um, and was fairly forthright about it, and rightly so. Um, so, yeah, that's going to come back, um, we think. Yeah. yeah, there'd be no positive sentiment attached to the DeLorean at all if it wasn't for the film, the movie franchise, would none it? What, actually, none whatever. People would just remember um, the financial impropriety, uh, all those poor people in Belfast who lost their jobs. Um, and, yeah, it would, it would, yeah, a grubby, grubby story. Um, but, you know, and there are so many others, you know... Um, we have you know, Austin, Woolsey, Morris, Standard, Lee Francis, HRG. I could, I could go forever. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I okay. think we're probably disappearing down small niches here. But um, yeah, yeah no, well, you, you're, you're, you're right. It is, um, it is amazing how many there have been. And also, the thing is, they weren't all rubbish. Some of them were really, mm. really good. Lagonda were really good. Austin Healy was really good. And they still didn't survive. We haven't mentioned MG, we haven't mentioned Bristol. Um, it, the list just seems to go on and on and on. Um, well, I mean, but, MG, is, MG exists, doesn't it? If you, know, yeah. if, if you can call a, 
you know a uh, an SUV like that. I mean, you know, but MG, you know, MG, you know, let's not forget, you know, very successful on the millimillion, set land speed records. Um, mm. You know, they were the sort of quintessential affordable British sports car, both before and after the war. Um, and maybe um, MG Motor will try and do something. Uh, usually what happens is, is you get a sports car brand like Porsche which decides to make an SUV. Now MG makes SUVs and I'm kind of hoping they're going to do a sports car mm. um, to provide themselves with some brand credibility, but I suspect not. Well, Anyway, I'm rambling. Let's hope so. Okay, well, we better wrap that one up somewhere. Um, so let's do that here. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast as ever. Yep. All the contact info you need is in the description. Um, please rate and review the podcast. That's really important. And please subscribe and follow wherever you listen to or watch this podcast. But we've got a listener question now. Um, and I've, good. Not, I've not briefed you on this one. This is from Graham no, King. Haven't. But you'll be fine. This is from Graham King. Um, do you have any experience of driving vehicles other than cars? I worked for years as a bus and coach driver. Terrible job, but the driving was great fun. Um, so while you ponder that one, vehicles other than cars, I'll give my answer. I just want to talk about those curious vehicles with handlebars like a motorbike and that you straddle like a motorbike, but which you don't lean into the corner on. So I'm talking about quad bikes. I'm talking about snowmobiles. Um, because like cars, you turn into a corner and naturally they roll outwards because, well, they either, either have four wheels or they they have wider tracks and skis. Um, and so I just, I feel it, I, I find it totally counterintuitive that you roll out and you're, you're still supposed to turn the handlebars that way. So it's that motion of turning the handlebars and rolling in the, in, in the sort of opposite direction that I just somehow my brain can't commute and it just means that i never feel in control of these things they're fun but when you're going quickly and particularly through say you know a narrow down a narrow track through the trees i just i feel like i'm moments away from having an enormous shunt yeah and, and you don't tend to get small shunts on those do you no because they tend to end up on top of you ouch Oof. yes okay um two um one i i i drive really quite a lot um we have a little bit of land here um which needs managing and so i have a tractor Uh, (laughs) and i love i love my tractor um it's the only tractor in the world with a nurburgring sticker on the side of it (laughs) and and what i love about it's 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 uh it's an early 80s not very big kubota um so it's got no tech on it no tech on it at all which means it needs managing all the time and you're always busy. You're always doing something, particularly if you're, I don't know, if you're topping a field. So you're, you're driving something that's hanging off the back of the tractor as well. Um, and I don't know if, you, if, you, if you, I'm sure most people listening to this have, have seen Clarkson's Farm or clips of it. Um, but, okay, on a scale of about one hundredth of that, it's, it's kind of like that. But I mean, I love cars that keep you busy and my tractor keeps me busy all the because you're always having to think. Um, so that's one. Uh, and the second one is I was on some Mercedes launch a few years ago. I don't know. I must have been in Germany or Austria or somewhere. Anyway, we were on some big test facility and there was a bit of downtime, as you often get in these things. And one of the um, activities that was available to journalists with nothing better to do is you could go and drive an Actros. Now, do you know what Rocky. an Actros is? No. An Actros is their is biggest lorry? lorry. Yeah. It's their biggest lorry. It's the absolute 
transcontinental, you know, if you think of an enormous lorry with a Mercedes badge on it, you're thinking of, of an Actros. And it didn't have a rig on the back, so it was just, it was just the lorry bit. Um, and, and we had this huge expanse of tarmac, so you really couldn't go wrong. Um, and I, I can remember so many things about it. I can remember just, you know, the climb up into it. You know, it just, it was so far off the ground. You're climbing and climbing and then you end up, and then you get into this cabin and it's so luxurious and it's got all the widgets. And then you get in it and you drive it and it has no traction at all. One of those things without, without a thing on the back. Uh, I think it might've been slightly damp um, and it had traction control. And unless you drove it very carefully, the thing basically it was just it with traction control lights flashing at you. Um, but I can remember... I can just remember how incredibly civilized it was up there um, and, you know, how Mercedes had thought hard about the life of the person, you know, who'd be driving it, who'd be spending basically their entire working life. This was their office. It happened to go from one place to another. It's not like you and I who might go and occasionally do a, a longish drive. That's what they do all the time, you know, for, for as long as their tachometer will um, allow them to do it. And... Um, yeah, that was fascinating. And, and and it sort of made me want to experience them a bit more. But, you know, how you do that without going down the road to getting an HGV license, which I'd never use, um, I don't know. But um, I'm fascinated by all different sorts of transport, particularly if it brings a new experience. Um, yeah. And that certainly did. So there you go. Thank you, Graham. Was, it's interesting hearing you talk about a tractor. I didn't know you had one, but it, it reminds me of a conversation Ooh, I had. Come with, over. You can have a go. Well, there we go. That, that has to happen. That will happen. Um, Excellent. I had a conversation with the great late Pat Flynn, who was right at the heart of the British rally community, a brilliant guy. Um, and he was explaining his theory to me as to why so many very quick rally drivers come from farming communities. Um, and I guess there are practical reasons farmers have space to store rally cars they have space to drive rally cars but his big point was that if you're a young guy driving a tractor and you're at the far end of the farm in a muddy field you don't want to get stuck you do not want to get stuck and you and have to trudge all the way back and come and get help so you're going to learn throttle control you're going to learn yes. a key yes. skill in yeah. rally driving um and it was it was very very interesting to him you know explain okay. that theory to me my tractor, it's got, uh, this is such a cool thing. So um, <laughs> I, I, I get it stuck quite a lot, okay? Right. And, and so you're sitting there, um, and one wheel's not doing anything, the other wheel's going, and it's stuck. But behind your right heel, there is a bar. And if you kick the bar, the axle locks solid. Oh, nice. And you just come out like a cork out of a bottle. <laughs> uh, and, it's, uh, and, and, and then you're off again. Um, That's brilliant. And it's also, it's also, it's got asymmetric braking. So you can right. break each wheel. You can break yeah. them together or you can undo the link. Yeah. Um, and when I'm doing, when I'm in the fields and you're trying to do really tight turns, um, you basically, you use the asymmetric braking to turn the tractor as much as you use the steering wheel. Um, and, that's a, and that's a great um, experience to have and an entire art that you need to master as well. And uh, yeah, it's good fun. Tractors rock. <laughs> there you go well graham king thank you for getting your question in um ask a good yeah, question like please. that and we'll answer it yeah do get them in uh thank you all for listening and we'll be back uh, to talk to you all again same time next week bye
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 